So, Asha, is the indictment of Donald Trump for the January 6th insurrection the most important charge he's faced to date? <sighs> it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. Uh, interesting indictment came out, very highly anticipated. Uh, I'm going to put a marker down and say, not a lot new there, and very much what we expected. Um, I think to me, if I'm just my quick reactions of what is, you know, sort of uh, unexpected or new there, I mean, I think some people, there's a big question of how many defendants would there be? You know, you, you know, uh, you know, there are all these folks like Eastman and, uh, Rudy Giuliani and so on who are clearly central to the scheme. Uh, Jeffrey Clark, they're not indicted. Um, and I think one of the, you know, kind of questions that goes along with that is did Jack Smith make a decision to not charge them to try to streamline things so this could get to trial before the election, knowing that he was going to likely drive more favorable judge than Aileen Cannon in the District of Columbia, who might, you know, push this case forward more quickly. Yeah. And we we discussed that, I think, last week um, or the week before that the there was an advantage to charging Trump only um, because it avoids potential delays and it doesn't foreclose the possibility of charging those other people because the statute of limitations, I guess, is going to go to at least 2025 or 20 early 20 January 26 for depending on the the um, actions. Um, I will say that also, I think now looking at the indictment, I think there's something very powerful to have only him named. Because he's the responsible one. Yeah. Like, I think it could have just, you know, there's a there's psychological impact, right? Like when you see United States of America versus Donald J. Trump, and then you see this litany of things and it's just defendant, defendant, defendant. Like, you know, it's not it's not littered with all these other names and caps or whatever. It's just him. You know, it's him. When they say defendant, it's him. And um, and it's going through, um, you know, play by play. And it's really focusing on his responsibility because that's been the big question, right? Like how we, I mean, we kind of all intuitively know, we know circumstantially that like he's responsible, but how is sure. he going to get, how is he going to get to Trump? How is he going to get to the mafia, Don? And you know, I think that this this helps convey that very clearly. You know, it's interesting. You call him the mafia done, and in some indictments, in some charges, that's more appropriate than others. You know, we've had we haven't had a chance to talk about the superseding indictment in Mar-a-Lago yet. That is a mafia done sort of indictment where he's like, hey. Um, you know, let's drain the pool. Let's, let's, you know, use the, the boss just wants this to go away. Yeah. The boss <laughs> wants to delete the tape. Right. But in any event, I actually think what makes this indictment stand alone from all the other ones that we have seen, um, you know, to date is this is the one in which he's the president of the United States and his role as president in my mind 
plays a central role here. He wanted to stay in power. He wanted to prevent the, the peaceful transfer of power. He was trying to corruptly use his power as president to initiate investigations of the Justice Department. You know, he was doing what he was doing. He was putting pressure on his own vice president. He was using and abusing the office of the presidency to corruptly stay in power. And that is what this is about. And that, I think, is make gives this whole indictment a historical significance that, to me, the other ones don't have. That's such a important point, Renato. And it was something that I was thinking about as well, especially when you look at what he was trying to do, right? It's not just he was president of the United States and he was running, you know, a Ponzi scheme on the side, you know, which also Trump is being civilly sued for a Ponzi scheme, but that we'll leave that for another <laughs> podcast. Um, he's using it to actually prevent the peaceful transfer of power in the the most like sacred, you know, aspect of our democracy and to deprive voters of have uh, from having their vote be counted. I mean, imagine like when you really think about that, like this is a this was someone who occupied the highest position of power and trust in our government and was trying to disenfranchise millions of people, was trying to intimidate the vice president and the Congress uh, in order to thwart the Constitution itself. It's quite extraordinary and frankly, pretty depressing. Yeah, it is. It's really he, what he was trying to do was robbing America in a certain sense of what makes us very special. I mean, I think one of the amazing things about our country is that George Washington could have become the king. And instead, he said, no, I'm going to decline that. I'm going to be president of the United States. And I am going to voluntarily step aside, not run, not stay in power and hand it off. That was like unheard of in history. And a lot of people at the time thought this, this guy's crazy for giving up power. And that, that was always a remarkable thing about the United States of America. And now we're a country like many others where we had a leader, our last, our last president try desperately to cling to power and unhatch an illegal scheme to try to stay in power. Yes. And just technically, this was um, what's known as an auto golpe, a self coup. Uh, it is that is an attempt um, by someone who is already in power to stay in power. Fancy, a coup fancy. is when someone who's not in power, like overthrows the existing government and then comes into power. This is how you know that Asha is a professor or a teacher <laughs> or a lecturer. Uh, very impressive, Asha. Well done. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. So, you know, from a legal perspective, so first of all, I guess the point I was trying to make is I don't even think this is, it's worth, I don't think you should slice and dice this indictment the way we often do with legal things. I think it has its own kind of importance and kind of stands above a lot of the yeah. other charges as a result. But if you were going to look at this legally. Before we go to the butt, can I just add one more thing? Yep. Because you know that Last summer, I I created a diagram of kind of this uh, hub and spoke conspiracy, if you will, because you know all these mm -hmm. things were coming to light, and it wasn't really clear how they all fit together. And what is the name of that chart, Asha? Well, I call it a coup chart. But but actually, I heard that that's not the right term. 
actually, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a sell. <laughs> it's a sell chart. Yes, you're right. This was a sell. Autogope. What was that? What was that? Auto, the autogope. Autogope chart. Um, but what I I do think it's worth like, and I'm just saying this because I do think it's important for everyone listening to read the indictment for themselves. I mean, I'm still you know trying to go and parse it very carefully. I had to read it very quickly before I went on air. But what I did get from you know what I read was um, a very good ability by Jack Smith and his team to really show how these different prongs of this very, quite frankly, a vast conspiracy fit together and to make it to convey that the violence that everyone saw unfold on January 6th was really the muscle, you know, the the last kind of push, Mm -hmm. you know, across the finish line of something that was much, much broader that involved state governments, that involved the Department of Justice, that involved, you know, lawyers who, who frankly knew better. Um, and I think that that's really important to put together. And he, I guess he used the charges that gave him a vehicle to be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, look, when you read this indictment, I think both you and I are in the, we, we, you know, are in the situation. We, this, these, this indictment was only, um, unsealed a couple hours ago so we're we've and we've both been doing all sorts of stuff in between so we've we've been trying to read it but i don't think it's i think it's fair to say we haven't in in you know we haven't used the sort of exacting uh analysis and close read that we would like to on this thing but my initial reaction to it first impression so to speak is there's a whole bunch of different kind of mini schemes that are part of this, which mm-hmm. is not going to be surprising to anyone who, you know, watched the January 6th hearings because there were a whole bunch of different things. This fake elector scheme, there was the whole, you know, Clark episode of trying to corruptly use the um, Justice Department. There was the pressure campaign against Mike Pence and so on and so forth. But one thing that I, I will just mention, by the way, from a legal legal perspective, is I'm sure the defense is going to try to argue that there's multiple conspiracies here, not just one. That perhaps um, it should be charged differently, and you know, and things along those lines. But I think this is a very complicated case to put in front of a jury. Really, January sixth committee, mm-hmm, because there is a lot. I mean, I think at its core, it's very simple. But there's a lot of context that you have to provide to make some of this make sense. January 6th committee did an amazing job doing that. But remember, that was over the span of a long, of many different hearings. Okay. First of all, there's no rules of evidence. There's no cross examination. There's no, you know, none of the clunky, you know, stuff that you would have to do during a trial. I just think there's a lot of moving parts to this. And, and, and I'm not saying you, it's not impossible to do. There's more complicated trials than this one, but I'm just saying there's a lot there. I mean, there's a reason you drew a chart with all sorts of hubs and spokes and pictures and this and that uh, in it, right? It wasn't just like a coup diagram with three boxes on it. It's like a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, though I I guess maybe I would... I'll ask. I mean, I, I push back, you know better because you're, you're the prosecutor... But a conspiracy is pretty straightforward, right? Like a conspiracy is an agreement to commit a crime. And what I always thought was the big challenge for Jack Smith here was showing evidence of that agreement because Trump keeps himself at an arm's, you know, 
like distance. He talks in code. It's very hard to pin him down. You know, he's very wily and he's quite shrewd and savvy, quite frankly, when it comes to criminal activity. And if you look at some of the details in this indictment, you know, Jack Smith has some dead to rights for like things that he said, communications he had, conversations he had, the pressure he was putting on people, the, the fact that he was actively participating and was fully on board. This was not something that his lawyers were doing on his behalf. And, you know, he just had nothing or he could he has any plausible deniability. So I guess I don't know. I That's how I read it. I was like, wow, he, he really has him at the center of a lot of this crap that's going on. He certainly does. But I'm just to give you a sense of what I mean, like there's the whole, let's say, Jeffrey Clark scheme, right? <laughs> Jeffrey Clark basically is like, let's write a letter to Georgia um, to be, be, it's falsely tell them we have an investigation going on to make it seem like there is something to these allegations of election fraud. There's something legitimate and basically suggest to them, and corruptly, by the way, that they should push off their uh, certification of electors or, you know, whatever, something along those lines. So, you know, if you look at it at a 10,000 foot level, a juror could look at them and be like, okay, so the, the attorney general and the president were, you know, the attorney general wanted to write a letter and the president was mad about that or was on board with that. And that's this, this guy's saying it's a bad thing. There is, it's very obvious when you look at the context of it that this was totally corrupt, but you have to understand a lot of context and pack a lot of context on to make that sense of that. And that has, I wouldn't say it has absolutely nothing, but it's, it's tangential to what, you know, Rudy Giuliani telling lies in a totally different state, right? It's, it's not that, not that they're not connected. It's not that they're not part of the same thing, but it's just, it's a lot. I think there's a lot of different moving parts and a lot of different things going on. And so telling the story of how, you know, in this indictment, they're talking about Rudy Giuliani telling lies about the campaign workers in Georgia. And then you've got a, a, the a acting attorney general doing his own thing in Washington. And I just think that putting all that and all that context in front of the jury, the way that, by the way, the January 6th committee masterfully did, in my opinion, uh, I think it's just, it's easy. It's, it's easier said than done. What they did and they made it look easy, uh, but doing it in a trial with all the rules of evidence and the objections and the cross examinations, it's not, not, not as easy as it looks. Yeah. I think you need a um, unifying narrative. And I, I mean, for me, what I always saw with this, and this is what I try to convey in my chart is that this is one big disinformation campaign. And if you look at it as a disinformation operation, all of it is meant to promote a, a cohesive narrative. They actually all fit together, whether it's, um, you know, getting the states to uh, whatever, question their election results, right. whether it's the stop the steal social media thing, whether it's the legitimizing propaganda coming from the Department of Justice to say, yeah, we actually found evidence of voter fraud. All of it's converging to me on one point. And I think if you could frame it that way to a jury, and that's why the conspiracy to defraud the United States, like using that deception, like kind of showing that this was information warfare, basically, this is kind of my thing, of course, but like, this was information warfare as a way to execute a self coup. I think it's, look, is it possible to make something complicated, simple? Yes. And that's the mark of a great trial lawyer. I actually. I volunteer to testify. 
<laughs> hey, I volunteered to try the case. I think it'd be a lot of fun to try. But my point is just that my, my point is just, I, and look, I think that is the secret to, I mean, what I've always, you know, told others when I, you know, to me, the way I think it look at trials is always the simple story wins and it's yep. about taking something complicated and making it simple. So I agree with all that, but I think this one is harder to make simple than a lot of other, than like the guy had a bunch of classified documents and he really wanted to keep them. Okay. That's the other one. That's the other trial, right? That's pretty straightforward. Okay. Yeah. There's not much to it. Like he had a bunch of classified documents. Boy, you really want to keep them. That's it. That's the whole case. I mean, th- there's nothing more to it than that. There's no, you need to understand a lot of context. The average juror is going to show up and they're going to be like, yep, that's a crime. Totally understand what that is. Um, so it, probably deleting, deleting your, your video files. That's a crime too. Or, you know, your evidence, delete the evidence. That's a crime. So this is just more complicated and that's okay. That's the name of the show, right? Um, they could use my term uh, <laughs> as an exhibit. Well, 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 here, let me, I'll throw out some other things that make it complicated. Okay. Uh, before we move on to timing and other interesting stuff. One thing that is also makes this complicated is the state of mind stuff matters more in this trial. So one of the reasons I've always said that the, the Mar-a-Lago case is more straightforward to prove because the state of mind stuff is basically dealt with by the kid gloves way that the just Roman handled the situation. You know, let's write you a letter. Let's like have visits. Let's do all this stuff. Like there's no question he really wanted to willfully keep the documents. Okay. In this thing, it's like they spent all this time in the indictment talking about like, is, did he really have a genuine belief that the election was stolen? And here's all the reasons why he didn't, which the January 6th committee covered very well too. And then there's this whole like advice of counsel stuff that's going to swirl around here because obviously some of the quote unindicted co-conspirators are lawyers. Um, and you know, Trump's going to try to trot all that stuff. It's just, it's a little bit more complicated than the case where all the lawyers are telling you like, please give the documents back. And you're like circumventing the lawyer to go to the pool guy and the IT guy. Um, because the lawyers are telling you something you don't want to hear. So I think it's, it's just more complicated and that, you know, it is what it is. That's, that's a challenge for Jack Smith. So let's talk timing. Um, I, you know, one, th- we talked a little bit about earlier, the fact that he, maybe he streamlined it to, to make this case go quickly. You know, it's, I, you know, he did, I wouldn't say beat the odds. He went with the odds by getting a, a judge that's going to yeah, likely right? be favorable to him. Most of the judges in the district of Columbia are, uh, in that federal courthouse. So I think one interesting question is, will this trial take place before election season? And I think the answer here is possibly. I think that would be my my answer. That's my careful answer about this. In other words, it's certainly possible that the judge is going to take the um, position that like, hey, this is really important and of paramount public concern and the public has a right to a speedy trial too. And, um, you know, there's nothing, everyone already knows this. This case is already well known. Everyone knows the facts. Let's just go to trial. Um, but I, I still think there's a chance the judge won't have those concerns because there's a lot of countervailing concerns about the rights of the accused and time to prepare for trial. And of course, a very busy trial calendar and a busy election season. Um, and there's also obviously just the chance that the defense, you know, uses its the many tools available to it to delay. I defer to you on on the timing piece, um, but I will note that compared to Mar-a-Lago, they don't have the complication of SIPA, right? Like they don't have the classified information. 
Um, I assume right. discovery will be more straightforward and less likely to encounter the kind of delays and hurdles that the Mar-a-Lago case would. Yeah, I think you have to look at this in contrast to Mar-a-Lago, and I think it's interesting. You know, Jack Smith, since we haven't talked superseding indictment in that case yet, mm-hmm. Jack Smith made a decision to add another defendant late in the game to the Mar-a-Lago to the Mar-a-Lago indictment. I was that late in the game, but like, what uh, you know, well after the original indictment was returned. So he made a decision there. I'd rather have the best possible case against Trump, even if it means slowing things down a bit. That was his decision there. Here, I think he made a very streamlined indictment. And I think there's a number of more streamlined, not a very streamlined, but more streamlined indictment than he could have. And what, you know, what is the, you know, some of the other differences here? Well, in, as you point out, obviously there's the SEPA issue, which we've talked about at length, the, the, um, the net, the law that essentially allows for interlocutory appeals, appeals sort of that pause the entire case in the middle of the, of the criminal proceeding. But there's also, the fact that almost all of this evidence is public. Now, they're going to still have to produce the evidence. But what I think the, the Justice Department's going to say is, at least what I would say if I was the prosecutor in this case, is I'd say, look, this guy right now has all the evidence. The entire public does. There's like public hearings in which all this stuff was aired. There's nothing new. We'll get them all of We're going to get them copies of everything. We're, there's very little new here. We'll get them copies of that in the next week. But and we'll keep producing all the stuff. We'll give him transcripts or whatever. But like he's already seen the witnesses, heard the evidence. It's the same stuff. Let's go to trial in like ninety days. Now yeah. that's just not how federal criminal cases work. Um, it's hard to get. You know, it's hard to get. You know, my clients to maybe respond to a subpoena in ninety days, much less uh, have a complete. You know, uh, trial from start to fin- you know from indictment to trial in ninety days. But you know, I, I think Jack Smith's going to try to take some very intense approach like that. And there's a chance that the district of Columbia judge like, yep, that sounds like a fantastic idea. Um, let's try to aim for that, which, you know, if you kind of anchor the, the thing so much towards the very speedy side, no matter how much delay there is, like you can just create enough time in between to get it done. That's sort of what it would look like, I think. I guess one of my reactions to this, I mean, I already talked about how important this is, how historic it is, how such a big deal this indictment is. It also seems to me one thing history is going to consider is why this indictment took so long to appear in our inbox or on our, on our, our, on our website or whatever. Why, why did it take so long to come up with this? And particularly that's the case when you see that the January 6th committee basically had almost all of this quite some time ago that they put out and the report, there are, there are very credible reports from the Washington Post and others saying that the Justice Department really didn't, you know, seriously pursue this investigation until after the January 6th hearings. And there's, there's anecdotal evidence to suggest that that's accurate. And so I do think we don't have enough information to evaluate it, but I do think 20 years from now, when historians are writing about this, or 50 years from now, they're going to look back at this, and that'll be a big question. Like, why did the Justice Department, early on in the Trump presidency, or in the, excuse me, Biden presidency, make a concerted decision that they weren't going to seriously investigate this issue? Well, I have this, I mean, I have this question, and I think it's something that Merrick Garland will have to answer for at some point. 
Um, I have written for Just Security uh, a pretty lengthy piece about some of the red flags that I think I've seen from the FBI that seem to suggest from public reporting and just the things that we saw that there might that that there was resistance coming from that part of the Department of Justice. But it also seems that there was a little bit of, you know, overcautiousness within among the prosecutors, too. And the question is, why? And I think, you know, my sense was always that Garland came in kind of wanting to do a reset to uh, bring to, you know, if you imagine the Department of Justice as a minivan with very poor alignment um, that was sort of like veering off the highway under Bill Barr, <laughs> Jeffrey Clark mm. or whatever. I feel like his he initially felt like my job is just to bring this back on the road, get the wheels right. back in alignment. And if that means trade-offs on like bygones speak bygones, then okay. And we saw, for example, that the statute of limitations on the obstruction of justice counts that were laid out in the Mueller report came and went without any commentary, which I found incredibly mm -hmm. disappointing. I mean, fine if you don't want to prosecute it. I do feel like when you have a momentous report like that, it's kind of worth saying, like, why are you not doing mm -hmm. anything I about agree. it now? I don't know, just as a matter of like just public legitimacy, because I think people still have that that question. And I think that was a miscalculation. Like, I think we cannot reestablish norms in a climate where norms are not being observed. It's not like everybody else went back to normal, too. The criming is still going on. I think our perspectives are very similar on this. I mean, guess what I would say the way I would put it is that that I think in his mind, perhaps Garland thought that he could um, deal with the politicization of the Justice Department and the um, abuses of the Trump administration by being a counterexample. Like, hey, we're now doing things right. We're going to be super above the fray, and that through a kind of being being a counterexample is going to sort of get our nation in the right track, like you suggest, get it back on the road. And to me, the problem with it is that it doesn't actually confront what happened. I mean, to me, the most important and problematic thing for me um, is that the Justice Department hasn't grappled with the abuses of the Justice Department during the Trump administration, the times when they were, you know, inserting themselves into sentencings and the attorney general was flying around looking for evidence for, uh, for um, you know, uh, for uh, his own, you know, Fox News uh, probe effectively. Um, and, you know, all the, everything else, the misleading uh, rollout of the Mueller report. So, so much was never, was never addressed by the, the new, um, attorney general in the new administration. I think that is legitimate to call. I think it's legitimate to call that into question. You know, Asha, one thing that, and I, and it's not a, it's not, I think, I don't want to suggest that these two things are equivalent because they're not. But I think after apartheid, you know, in South Africa, one important thing they did is they had truth and reconciliation commissions. And part of the idea there was like, look, we all kind of have to live together. If we all try to punish and, you know, try to punish everybody involved in the system, we're not going to have a functioning society. 
but so as long as you kind of came forward and told the truth and like everyone said, like, this is what happened, more or less the focus was on getting the truth out there and re- reconciling versus punishment for the past. If, if I think it, it would have been more defensible for Garland to have that approach. But what we got was a lack of grappling with the truth, a lack of reconciliation. And then like nothing was done. I was like ignoring the past. And I think that's very dangerous. Yeah, I love the the analogy to apartheid because what you're saying is there was a reckoning where everyone had to at least agree on a shared version of reality before we could right. move forward. And I think that what we have in this post-truth era is that people are inhabiting different realities and we haven't, and that's, that's a, a special problem. But I will say that even before you know, disinformation and all this stuff became a problem. I feel like we, this has been our MO. It's like, we're like a conflict avoided nation or something like that until now. You know, like if you look at how the Obama administration dealt with torture. Right. That's another one. There was no reckoning there either. And in fact, Gina Haspel, who was a participant in the enhanced interrogation techniques, was then named... Yeah, and confirmed as right. director of the CIA. Um, and if you go back even further with Nixon, I think that, you know, I don't know, I guess we can have, we, we can debate this, but, you know, there was a certain way of, you know, this is just going to be too stressful for everyone or something. And let's, you know, pardon him and, um, you know, and, and I will say at least in that case, there was a public show of some acceptance of responsibility by stepping down. So maybe it worked. But I think, look, in all these cases, when you don't, when you don't deal with the situation, it's like within your own life. Like if you try to gloss over crap, the chickens are going to come home to roost at some point. Like, you know, you need to go to therapy and deal with your demons. And we as a country have a big problem dealing with our demons, I think. It's interesting. Yeah, I do think with Watergate, it was different in the sense that the country, there was clearly an understanding, I think a bipartisan understanding that what happened was wrong, that we need significant reforms to deal with that. I would have a different reaction, Asha, to all of this if like there was some bipartisan understanding that like, okay, this is a really bad era and like there's a lot of abuses here. So and let's we're not pass- going to let Trump run again. Like if he was like banned from the Republican Party or something like that. And they had like, I, I mean, to me, the thing, some of the things that m- would motivate me or I'm more focused on is like, can we have so much of reform laws to make sure that like our government isn't abused in this fashion again? And like the only one we got on that, the only thing we got is on this electoral count. Uh, act thing, right? Where they're basically slightly reforming that, which is good. I'm not, I'm not against that, but it's really the only thing we've, we've got. And that's a great, um, counterpoint to the post Nixon era where there were many reforms. You had the Ethics and Government Act of 1978, which is what created the independent prosecutor, et cetera, et cetera, that eventually becomes the special counsel. You have, um, FISA that systematizes mm-hmm. and brings in the judicial branch to electronic surveillance. You have the House and Senate intelligence committees, which are created to create oversight. I mean, so you're right that there were a number of productive things that came out of that, that acknowledged as at an institutional level, that this is not something that we wanted to repeat again. Correct. And that's what we're lacking here. 
M S W Media.